Thin Air is an independently recorded and produced podcast based out of Boise, Idaho. Thin Air is hosted by me, Daniel Calderon, and Jordan Sims. If you want to help support what we do, you can contribute to us directly through Patreon, a website dedicated to helping artists in which you can choose a monthly pledge amount with various rewards. Some of the rewards we offer include bonus episodes, ad-free episodes, executive producer credits, and insider blog posts. To become a patron, head over to patreon.com slash thinairpodcast. Today's episode of Thin Air is brought to you by Audible. We would like to thank Audible for supporting Thin Air. For a free audiobook with a 30-day free trial, go to audible.com slash thinair or text thinair to 500-500. April 26th, 1964, the Michael Reese Hospital in Chicago, Illinois. In hospital room 418B, Dora and Chester Fronzak, aged 28 and 33 respectively, had given birth to a healthy baby boy who they named Paul. Per hospital custom, a single photograph was taken of Paul and he was tagged with a bracelet bearing his name. A birth certificate was issued, but no fingerprints or footprints were taken, and no blood was drawn despite that being common practice today. 36 hours after Paul's birth, a middle-aged woman dressed as a nurse entered Dora's hospital room. She told Dora that they needed to examine Paul in the nursery to run some tests. Although Dora wasn't familiar with the woman, the pretext, her uniform, reasons, and relatively calm demeanor made sense and put Dora at ease. Dora handed Paul to the woman and she left the hospital room. According to news articles at the time, the unidentified woman then leaves with baby Paul out the rear entrance of the hospital. She catches a cab and takes it to the corner of 35th and Halstead, just south of downtown Chicago. The unidentified woman exits the cab and disappears, with Paul, into the bustling city streets. Her identity and motive unknown. What would occur in the weeks, months, and inevitably years to follow would spur a nationwide manhunt involving multiple agencies, and when the truth is finally revealed, it leaves everyone with more questions than it does answers. Join us as we examine the case of the missing infant, Paul Joseph Fronzak. The day before baby Paul was taken from Michael Reese Hospital, an unknown middle-aged woman, dressed as a nurse, was seen roaming the maternity ward, even assisting in some of the hospital's routine duties like folding towels. Depending on what report you read, the woman is described differently, but the most common description is something like this. A 35 to 45 year old white woman, perhaps of European descent, 
She is said to have had a reddish complexion and salt and pepper colored hair. She was of medium height between 5'4 and 5'7, and she was dressed as a nurse, including a hairnet, which, depending on the situation, may have been covered with a babushka. It is even speculated that the woman may have worked in the medical field and had a knowledge of the layout and routines of hospital staff. On the day of baby Paul's disappearance, April 27th, this unidentified woman entered Dora's hospital room for the first time around 9.30 a.m. On this occasion, Dora was in the middle of breastfeeding. The unidentified woman walked up to Dora lifted the blanket to look at Paul, and then left. The woman doesn't appear again until almost five hours later, around 1.53 p.m. By this point, Chester, Dora's husband, has returned to work at Hewitt Robbins, where he works as a machinist. It is in this fateful moment, while Dora is vulnerable and alone, that the unidentified woman asks for the baby. She claims the baby is needed in the nursery for some examinations. Dora hands Paul to the woman, and the woman leaves the room. What happens next is as much a mystery as everything else is in the story. But here's what I've been able to piece together from newspaper articles, police reports, and interviews. At 2.15 p.m., 25 minutes After the unidentified woman left Dora's room with baby Paul, a 20-year-old student nurse named Mary Trenchard sees a woman holding a baby leaving the hospital through the rear entrance. From there, the woman gets into a cab driven by 34-year-old Lee Kelsey. Kelsey drives the woman to the intersection of 35th and Halstead, where she pays her fare and disappears into the unknown with the baby. Around 2.30 p.m., 15 minutes after the unidentified woman got into the taxi, an actual nurse enters Dora's room to collect Paul to bring him to the nursery. Dora tells the nurse that Paul is already at the nursery and that another nurse had already come by to collect him. Confused, but not wanting to cause alarm, the nurse goes to the nursery in search of Paul. When they are unable to locate Paul, the staff immediately calls the police to alert them of a possible infant abduction. But they refrain from telling Dora, possibly to avoid causing her undue stress and worry without concrete evidence of Paul's disappearance. It quickly becomes clear that Paul is, in fact, missing. And by 2.55 p.m., newspapers report that there's a city-wide broadcast alerting Chicago that a baby has been taken from the Michael Reese Hospital. Despite all of this, Dora wouldn't find out that her baby was missing until around 7 p.m. that night, as police and hospital staff did all they could to locate the missing Franzak baby in the interim. In the end, it would have to be Chester who broke the news to Dora. In 
the days after baby Paul's disappearance, the Fronzacs would become the center of a media firestorm. After all, the kidnapping of a baby from an inner city hospital wasn't a usual occurrence. Along with the news coverage, newspapers and media outlets ran stories that included the baby's formula recipe in an appeal to the kidnapper to tend to his needs and keep him alive. The day after Paul's kidnapping, Chester made a plea to the kidnapper to return Paul to him and his wife. In the aftermath of Paul's kidnapping, the Fronzacs became the focus of a nation. Reporters would be hanging outside their quaint suburban home on a daily, if not hourly, schedule. Their lives were the exact opposite of what they imagined the days after the birth of their son would be like. The Fronzacs, devout Catholics, even received a personalized condolence letter from the Pope. The media and America couldn't get enough of the missing Fronzac baby from Chicago. Meanwhile, the investigation into Paul's disappearance yielded some additional clues. For starters, the police were able to speak to a woman named Lisa Cohen, who had also given birth at Michael Reese Hospital during this time, but was in a different room in the maternity ward than Dora. She told police that she also had an encounter with the unidentified woman. Lisa told authorities that she came in once to look at the baby, just like she had done with Dora, and then again a second time to ask for the baby, again, just as she had done with Dora. Lisa confronted the woman, asking her who she was and what she was doing there. According to news articles, the unidentified woman didn't respond to Lisa's questions and left the room. Police also interview Lee Kelsey, the cab driver, to see if he could offer any additional insight. He tells authorities that he was dispatched to that location like any other call and that he had no connection to the unidentified woman. He tells authorities she was wearing a red babushka, which she removed to expose a hairnet, matching the description of the woman at the hospital. He also tells police that the baby was wrapped in a blanket and wasn't visible. Days and weeks would eventually pass with no additional clues about Paul's disappearance. As a result, the Fronsacs would continue to be bombarded by the press, which on one hand is a good thing because it provides them with an outlet for more people to be aware of Paul's story and be on the lookout for the missing infant. But on the other hand, it would take quite a toll on Dora and Chester. This would be the second loss for the two after their first child was a stillborn. As a whole, things didn't look promising for Dora and Chester. Despite the massive manhunt for the unidentified woman, which even included mail carriers going door to door looking for a baby, there were never any additional clues. Plus, by now, the woman and the infant could have been anywhere, perhaps even in another country. With no sign of the woman and baby Paul, 
the case would eventually go cold and leave Dora and Chester devastated. That is, until July 2nd, 1965, a little over a year after Paul's kidnapping, when an unidentified baby was found in a stroller outside a variety store in Newark, New Jersey. It was on Broad, Broad Street in Newark, New Jersey, outside of a store called McCrory's Variety Store, which was like the hottest store back then. This store was so popular, they even had a subway platform inside the store so people can come from the city and all other areas to go shopping in the store. And I was found in a stroller outside the store. Were there any witnesses? Like, Who found you there? Someone made an anonymous phone call. But apparently I, I was out there for a long time and I was really sick. I had like a really bad cold or I was just really, really sick. I mean, I'm imagining then that being at a really busy store and being called in that they wanted you to be found relatively quickly. I, I feel the same way. That's, that's exactly what I was thinking. Otherwise, I could have been you know, put in a dumpster or something, you know? Authorities placed the unidentified child into foster care. So I was placed into the system, and I was given a new name, Scott McKinley. I was placed in with a family called the Eckerts, and they were, they were known for taking in um, kids from the system and, and helped them. And um, they had like 10 other children when I, was, when I was put there. They were really great people, and they, they, really, they, they wanted to keep me. They, they baptized me as Scott McKinley, and I was part of the family. While Scott McKinley settled into his new life as a part of the Eckert family, local authorities begin searching for baby Scott's birth parents. They take out ads in newspapers from New York and New Jersey, appealing to the public to help identify Scott. There were a few leads, but they all led nowhere. Abandoned as an infant by his parents, and discovered and cared for by others, Scott became what is known as a foundling. After almost a year of living with the Eckert family, the FBI arrives at their door one day to tell them that they believe that Scott is actually Paul, the missing Franzak baby. I was with them for almost a year and I, I became part of the family. And then one day the FBI showed up and said that I matched the description of this uh, kidnapped child from Chicago and they wanted to do some testing and uh, to see if I was really that, that child. And what kind of testing did they do from there? <laughs> they based the whole thing off the shape of my ear. Can you sort of explain, <laughs> explain that a little bit? Okay, so everyone's ear, I guess, is different. It's like a fingerprint. And because Paul didn't have any fingerprints or footprints or anything or blood tests to go by, all they had was a picture, and the ear was pretty much prominent in the picture. So they, they determined out of over 10,000 other kids that my ear matched the closest to baby Paul. After the FBI determined that I was probably Paul, they contacted Mrs. Mr. 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 Franzak, and they said that we think we have Paul. We'd like you to come down to New Jersey and, and to identify him. They drove all the way to, from Chicago to, um, to New York, uh, Newark, New Jersey, 
and they were put in a room and then they brought me in and they said, is this your child? Here she was faced with the FBI and the whole world watching and them saying, is this your child? And she said she could either say, I'm not sure, or she could say, yes, this is Paul. And she, she said, either way, this was a child that needed a home and it very well could be Paul. So yes, this is our son, Paul. And back then the FBI was like the ultimate authority figure. So when they're telling you this is your child, you're thinking this is probably my child. I mean, they can't be wrong. They're the FBI. And exactly, yeah. exactly. After being face to face with Scott, Dora and Chester decide that this is their missing son, Paul. They adopt Scott, bring him home to Chicago, and rename him Paul Joseph Franzak. He is assigned Paul's birth certificate and begins his life anew with Dora and Chester as his official mother and father. You were what, two, three around this time? Almost three, yeah. You don't have any memories of this time, do you? No, I don't. What is your earliest memory? (sighs) I remember going to elementary school and my mom had had this crazy jacket on me. It was like really a, just a psychedelic, crazy looking jacket. And I was so embarrassed to wear it. And um, I just remember being so overprotected. Don't, don't ever talk to any strangers. You know, just don't do it. You know, it's just, I, I, I never understood why my, other, my friends could, you know, I had so much more freedom. And I was really, I was really watched so closely. Paul grew up as part of the Franzak family. In his younger years, they were joined by his brother, David, Dora and Chester's biological son. As years went on as normal, most of what Paul experienced in the first few years of his life would eventually become a memory, then a distant memory, and then gone altogether. Then, when Paul is 10, As he is snooping around the house, he comes across a box of letters and postcards, which includes a few newspaper clippings he's never seen before. This is something that we never talked about in the house. When I was 10 and I was snooping around and found all the boxes full of uh, letters and postcards and all those things and headlines about the kidnapping, when I brought it to my mom's attention, she scolded me and said, we will never talk about this. And we never did until about a year and a half ago. My mom finally started telling me what she went through and how she harbors all this guilt. But when you're in a hospital and someone dressed like, like a nurse saying that she's a nurse and the doctor wants to see the baby, you don't think about it, you just do it. From the articles Paul discovers in the box, he was able to piece together his story, his kidnapping, the manhunt, and his eventual return to his parents. And it all seemed surreal to Paul that the entire country could have been focused on him before he was even old enough to know. 
So what did you think when you found those news clippings? To me, it was just, it was cool. I mean, I was like, I was in headlines of the, of the newspaper, you know? And my mom said, you were, you were kidnapped. We found you. That's all you need to know. We'll never talk about this again. Around what age was it that you started to sort of think about or realize or question that something wasn't right? After I, when I was 10 and I found those articles about the kidnapping and everything, that even though I didn't understand it, it always stayed with me. But certain little things like I've always been into music. I've, I played all kinds of instruments and I was in a band for a long time. I've always been into acting and theater. And David and my mom and dad were never into those things at all. And the way I looked, I didn't look like they did. My hair was different, my skin color, um, shape of my face. And David was just like my dad. Um, my, my, my dad was Polish. So David had light hair, lighter eyes, real light skin, uh, different body type. Just everything was just different. And so that always made me question, was I really Paul? And what are the chances of me actually being this child that was kidnapped, found a couple of years later on the other side of, uh, of the U.S.? You know, it just didn't make sense to me. So leading up to this, you had all these suspicions. At what point did you decide that you finally wanted to find out the truth? I left home when I was 18. I was in a rock and roll band and moved to Arizona. And I always questioned whether I was really, you know, Paul. And um, it, honestly, it, even being called Paul never really felt right to me. Like, it just didn't feel natural. I've always wanted to do a DNA test. Like, I used to joke about it, you know, getting hair samples from my parents when they would stay over. And, but I, I could never, I never, I'll never follow through with it until the 2012, I finally, I finally did it. And what was that decision like to make? Um, I was actually at a CVS a couple months prior to their visiting, and I finally saw a DNA kit that I could afford, because usually it was so expensive to get hair analysis and all those things done. And I found this Identigene kit, and it was like 25 bucks. And so I bought it, and I threw it in the, in the closet, and I just, I said, one day I'm going to do this. My parents came out to visit a little while later, and they were here for about a week. And finally, the last day they were here, I was supposed to take them to the airport in about an hour. I finally just asked my mom, I said, did you ever wonder if I was really, really Paul? And she said, yeah, we, we thought about it. And I said, well, what if we had a way to really find out? Would you, would you want to know? And she said, yeah, possibly. So I ran and got the kit. And within 10 minutes, we're all swabbing away. And um, I think I got them off guard because they didn't have time to think about what was happening. And before it was all said and done, I, I had the DNA samples. And I took them to the airport, and no one said a word. And when they got home to Chicago, they called me and said, we don't want to know. What happened after that? So I wrestled with it for a couple of weeks. I had it all, all ready to go. I had it in my desk drawer. And I'm, it's like, here's something I wanted to know for so long. And I finally have the means to do it. And my parents just said they don't want to know. So I wrestled with that. And then I just woke up one morning and I said, you know what? I don't want to live a lie. I want to know the truth. And so I just went and mailed it in. What kind of information did you get back as a result? So I was at work about, I think maybe two weeks later, I get a phone call and they're asking all kinds of identification questions. They're like, you know, all these security questions. And I was like, well, why are you asking me all these questions? And they asked me, why did you want to know the answer to this test? 
and I gave a brief synopsis of the story. And the guy said, there's no remote possibility that they are your parents. And, and that, that just changed everything for me. Yeah. What was it like in that moment? Um, I, I didn't say a word probably for like five minutes and I was at work just staring at my desk. And it's like, I started thinking everything I knew my whole life was a lie and I was living someone else's life. And all I thought about was what happened to Paul. I need to find Paul. I didn't care about myself. I didn't, I wasn't thinking about any of that. I just wanted to know what happened to the real Paul. More when we return. Audiobooks are great for helping you be a better you. For our audience, Audible is offering a free audiobook with a 30-day free trial. If you want to listen to it, Audible has it. Just go to audible.com slash thin air or text thin air to 500-500 and browse their unmatched selection of audio content, download a title free, and start listening today. It's that easy. Whether you want to feel healthier or learn something new, Audible has an audiobook for that. Paul Fronzak, who we spoke to for this episode, wrote a book called The Foundling, a true story of a kidnapping, a family secret, and my search for the real me, which is available for download on Audible. I got a chance to ask Paul about his book during our interview. Given that your experience, just your life experience in general is so unique, what's some of the universal themes or universal messages that underlie your book that somebody could connect with? It's about about family, about truth, being true to yourself, why we are the way we are, you know, what makes us us. You know, it's not about uh, who raised you or things like that. It's I've, I've come to believe that we're born a certain way. It's Those are the universal themes, I think, you know, about love lost and, and family and bloodlines and what's, what, what does it really mean to be a family? Paul's book, The Foundling, is available on Audible. One of the amazing features of Audible is that you can share books from your library with others. If you share a book from your library with someone else, and it's their first time accepting a book through this feature, they can listen to it for free. Remember, your books are always yours, and you get credits each month to spend on new books. To get a free audiobook with your 30-day free trial, go to audible.com slash thin air or text thin air to 500-500. That's a-U-D-I-B-L-E dot com slash thin air or text thin air to 500-500. From the moment Paul received the news that he wasn't the kidnapped baby from the Chicago hospital with whom he now shared a name and a birth certificate, his world changed Not only did his discovery mean that his parents' biological child was still missing, 
it also meant that his true identity, where he came from and why he was abandoned, was also still a complete mystery. So what was it like in the weeks after you found out that basically you weren't who you thought you were? So once I got the information, I knew I had to do something because I wanted to find Paul. So it was a Saturday afternoon and I was watching TV and I thought the best way to do this would be to contact the only guy I think could find some answers for us. And there's a reporter out here named George Knapp. He's won Peabody Awards. The guy was the guy to talk to. I sent him a brief email, a couple of lines describing my situation and are you interested? He got back in about 10 minutes and said, I need to meet with you. George Knapp from from Coast to Coast AM, right? Yeah. And um, so George, I met with him on, uh, on Monday and told him a story. And he said, we need, we need to get this on the air. We need to get people to help. And we need to solve these mysteries. And um, so uh, he, we, we shot a quick little uh, five-minute segment. He aired it. And within a couple of days, it went national. I mean, it went, everyone picked it up. I was getting calls from um, from Matt Lauer. From uh, I got uh, a package from Barbara Walters, um, Forty Eight Hours, all these different TV shows. People that wanted to talk to me, and George and I said, you know what, we're going to solve this quickly because everyone's going to help us, and it's going to be quick. And it sure it sure wasn't. <laughs> For the first few months, Paul's focus is on finding his parents' missing infant but his efforts accomplished little in terms of solving the disappearance. The kidnapping had occurred so long ago, and wherever this now adult is today, he most likely has no idea that he was the victim of an infant abduction. So how did it feel to go from the mystery, you you being the mystery, to suddenly being the detective in, in a way? Well, you know, it's funny, Daniel, because when I started this, I wasn't really concerned with myself. I wanted to find Paul. So I was, I was already in that role of being the detective trying to find out what happened to my parents' son. And then only later down the road, you know, George Nass said, hey, why don't you find out who you are too, you know? It might be important. And, and that's when I, you know, started realizing that might be a little easier to do. It may have seemed easier to do, but at the time, it was anything but. It would take a few years for genetic technology to be readily available enough for there to be any critical movement in figuring out Paul's true identity. So Cece Moore and her team, along with Matt Dayton and Ancestry DNA, also 23andMe and um, GEDmatch and um, Family Tree DNA, all these companies pitched in to help. It's funny, you know, everyone does DNA, but they all have their own databases. So in order to really get a full a full impact, you have to go with everyone. So when I went on Ancestry, only one name popped up as a second cousin, and that was um, Alan Fish. So Alan popped up as my second cousin. Turns out he's adopted. And we knew who his mom was, but the father wasn't listed, and the mom wouldn't talk. And day, days before I was supposed to meet with Alan to meet him and talk with him, he's not feeling well, goes to the hospital, Tells everyone in the hospital that you gotta get me out of here. I'm going to New York to meet meet my, my real cousin Paul. And he dies. 
And that's how this whole story has been. It's just been these crazy things that you would never expect. With the unexpected death of the only confirmed person of biological relation to Paul, he is left where he originally began, with no clue as to who he is or why he was abandoned. That is, until 2015, when a team of researchers and genealogists, led by C.C. Moore from DNA Detectives and Finding Your Roots, make an incredible discovery. C.C. Moore and her team actually found who they thought were my parents. So I was at work, it was June 3rd, 2015, and C.C. Moore and I have been, you know, talking, and her team, whenever they get a new tip, they would, she'd send me a text, can you talk? So I would just leave my desk, go out to my car, and, and prepare for, the, you know, whatever's going to come. And so she said, can you talk? So I ran out to my car, and I called her. I wanted to try to ease into it, but not keep him hanging too long. I asked him what he thought about the name Jack, and he said he liked it. I am Cece Moore. I'm a professional genetic genealogist. And I'm the founder of the DNA Detectives. And she said, um, what do you think of the name Jack? And I said, that's a cool name. It's strong. It's a good name. And then I told him that was his name. She's like, that's your name. He, I think, was just in shock. But he immediately identified with the name, he said. And he's talked about that since. That he felt like it fit. He was called that, you know, for at least almost the first two years of his life. He wasn't as young as they thought he was when they found him. So it's not too surprising that he identified with it. And she said, but wait, there's more. And by chance, they happened to find a newspaper article in the Atlantic City Press about this family who were celebrating October 27th because they had just given birth to twins, a Jack and a Jill. And it was the same day as the wedding anniversary and the same day as one of their older children's birthdays. After I told him his real name, I had to tell him he had a twin that was missing. So he really got a double whammy. You know, here's your name, here's who your parents were, and you had a twin that doesn't appear to exist today. It is not living under that name. Uh, we immediately did research trying to see if there was any other families abandoned children around that time that could be Jill. Uh, there wasn't. And so he had a really heavy discovery immediately after finding out his true identity. So I think, you know, he really had a lot he had to come to terms with very quickly. What was it like when you found out that you had a twin? Well, all I thought was, now I've got another mystery, and I've really got to solve this one. I've got to find Paul, and I've got to find out what happened to my sister. So what do we know about Jill, or, or what do you know about what have you learned? I learned that my, my parents were abusive and that um, they were really tough on us. I had two older sisters and a younger brother. And I got to meet my older sister, and I've talked to my younger brother. And no one remembers the twins. My grandma had a, uh, a scrapbook of, of all the children pictures in chronological order. The pages where the twins were, they were ripped out. 
And when my parents were still alive, they told half the family that the other half was watching the twins and so forth. And eventually they came out and said the twins were adopted. They weren't working out, so we gave them back. But clearly, we, we had my birth certificate and Jill's birth certificate, so we know that we were actually born in their family. And they, they had a major cover-up. So I've learned that something bad happened to Jill, and that's why I believe they abandoned me, because they couldn't explain one twin hanging around. What do you mean by something bad? Either on purpose or by accident, I think that Jill was either murdered or uh, was, you know, killed on accident. And I think they buried her body and they got rid of me because they couldn't explain just one twin. Right. So how much do you know about your biological parents? So um, I got to meet uh, my, my real cousin. His name is Lenny. Really great guy. He was a famous doo-wop singer in the 50s. You know, it's that whole music thing. I've, I've been in bands my whole life. And here was my blood cousin who was, you know, in, in music and acting. And um, he, he said that, that my dad was his best friend. And he told me stories about how they used to do things back in the old days on the boardwalk. And then later, my dad went, went to the war, Korean War, came back a really different guy, just a really mean guy. And he was a cop on the boardwalk in Atlantic City in the 60s. And his brother was hanging out with, uh, with some underworld characters like Nicky Scarfo and people that ran, you know, the mob in that area. So it, it painted a pretty grim picture of, of these guys. What, what about your mom, your biological mom? Yeah, it's, it's the same deal. Um, not, not really good stories. Um, my, my mom was a heavy drinker and um, this wasn't really, uh, wasn't really the ideal mother. Yeah, I've got some stories in the book that are pretty, pretty sad. So how long after you find all this out do your parents find out? After George aired the first story, I wanted my parents to know and I wanted them to, to understand why I was doing this because they were thinking I was doing it because I wasn't happy with them and I wanted to find my real parents, which couldn't be further from the truth. I was doing it because the greatest injustice happened to them. They had their child taken and I wanted to find their real child. And I thought, I thought the greatest gift I can give them, so if they give me the greatest gift of life, that I would find their child for them. So my, my parents are a little older, my dad a little hard of hearing. And um, so I decided that I would write them a letter. That way they could process it, they could read it over, they could really absorb it. Because a phone call, my mom would only hear what she wanted to hear. And it, it just wouldn't go well at all. So I actually uh, did a, a letter. And that's, that's how they found out. What was their reaction like, or what were you able to gather from them after, after that about how they felt about the situation? It, it didn't go the way I, I hoped it would. I thought it would be a really, a, a nice, um, a nice experience that we could all, um, like join in together and, and work together and find, find Paul. Uh, they took it the other way and they didn't talk to me for almost two years. Oh, wow. Yeah, it, it didn't go the way I hoped it would. I, I, I really think that it was a really, really bad memory, a bad experience. And they just wanted me to be Paul and to leave it alone. And by knowing that I wasn't Paul, they have to go through all this again and, uh, and then start wondering what happened to the real child. And mostly they thought I wasn't happy with the way they raised me as parents.
I wanted Cece Moore's perspective on how her and her team were able to discover Paul's true identity. When you get a case like Paul's, when when you find it, like wh- what do you do from there? Like how do you start the research, or, or how do you begin to help someone like Paul? So when I first get a case like Paul's, I want to make sure that we're using all the tools and all of the resources available. So I'm going to make sure that they're tested at all four of the companies offering autosomal DNA matching. And if it's a male, I'll also get a Y DNA test from Family Tree DNA. So I want to kind of pull out all the stops, make sure we have all the data that we need and go from there. Working through the process then a little bit, when you do get a match, what do you do from there? So then I'm going to go look at all of the match lists and see where the closest matches are. Um, And those obviously will always be at the top of the list. It's the people that are sharing the most DNA. And I need their family tree. I can't do much with that match without knowing what their family tree is. So sometimes they'll have a family tree on that site or not. If they don't, I can often build it based on their name. Um, But sometimes if they have a common name, I might have to reach out to them and ask them for family information. Do you remember with Paul's case specifically, sort of how long it took you from getting the information to uncovering who his biological family was? Paul's case took a long time because it was started back when the databases were much smaller. And so most people had many less matches than they have now. And most people didn't have very close matches. But when I became involved, I originally thought it would be quick because 2020 told me he had a second cousin match. And that's kind of the sweet spot. If someone has a second cousin match, you know they share about great grandparents and you should be able to identify the biological parents based on that or one of the parents. And so I was ready to just dig in, thought it would be quick. And then we found out that that second cousin match was adopted and didn't know his own biological family. So that was very disappointing. And it ended up taking much, much longer to solve. Um, I think it ended up being two years that we worked on this. And I had a team working on it. At least one of us worked on it every single day. It might have only been a little while or it might have been 18 hours. Uh, We spent hundreds, I would say thousands of hours collectively on his case. Now that wouldn't be true today. When I look at his match list today, it would have been solved very quickly within months or maybe even days. So it's changed dramatically. It was a lot of work back then. I mean, each case, unless you just got lucky and got a very close match, each case took months or even years. And now most cases we can resolve in weeks or sometimes hours. Do you remember the day you found out who Paul's biological family was? Oh, I could not forget it. (laughs) It was amazing. This case, you know, oftentimes I'm just working with DNA and the family trees, but this case was so complicated for a few reasons. One, he had Ashkenazi Jewish ancestry, um, which that population has what's called endogamy where there's a lot of intermarriage further back in the tree, and that makes matches look closer than they are. So there was a lot of false leads where we thought we had a really good match, and it turned out to be endogamous. Then the other side of his family was from Tennessee, and they also had a pedigree collapse, which is similar to endogamy, but it's a little bit less severe and more recent. But it also complicated it for the same reason, cousin marriages. Um, So multiple relationships making 
this match look closer. So we had to do other things, and that included calling the target families. Once we narrowed down to some families that we thought were uh, potential, uh, one of my team members, who's really good on the phone, started calling around to see if she could you know, get some information. You know, every little piece matters when you're working on one of these cases. It really is like being a detective. It can be any the smallest thing might break it wide open for you. And in this case, she called one of the people we thought was a cousin or even possibly a half-sibling, and they told us that there was missing twins in one of the families. And that was shocking, something we'd never heard before. Some people, you know, when someone vanishes, they're somewhat invisible in the paper trail. You know, they're not on the family trees. And so we didn't know if this was true, but we, one of my team members jumped in a car and drove to New Jersey, where this family was from, and went directly to the library and started going through the microfiche because this person that we had talked to had mentioned that there might be a newspaper article about the twins. And she found it, this tiny little newspaper article that talked about this family that had twins and how they had had four children in five years, I think it was, or something like that. And so we knew they existed. After that, we're able to find the birth records confirming that they really did exist. So at that time, once it was even a possibility, I turned back to the family trees. We knew we were looking for someone with primarily Jewish ancestry on one side. Um, that side also had Southern European, probably Italian. And then the other side was Tennessee. So I went back to the trees and we already had the father's side, but I started building his wife's side of the tree and it immediately went to Tennessee, the very county that I had been building lots of trees in, Overton County. And I will never forget that moment. I mean, I was in tears because it had been such a long search. I had always said if we found a family that fit certain ancestral origins that I would know it was right. While I had Cece on the phone, I also wanted to know how, if at all, genealogy could potentially help solve the case of Dora and Chester's missing biological son. Do you think it's possible to find this Paul Franzak? And what would it take, I guess, from from your side of things for this baby Paul Franzak to be found? It's different because with Paul, we could use his own DNA in order to reverse engineer a family tree. So all his matches were important. But when you're searching for a single person like the real Paul Franzak, we need either him to test or one of his descendants. So a child or if he were old enough, you know, if he had children young, he could have a grandchild who tests. I, it's certainly a possibility, but it's not as doable as when you're working with someone trying to find their parentage, because in that case, every match is a clue. But in this case, only that one match that you're waiting for is what's going to solve the case. So it's certainly possible. And when people have come forward thinking they might be him, you know, all we have to do is DNA test them and compare them to the Fonzac family and see if they're a match. And that's happened quite a bit. So far, we haven't gotten the match that we hoped for, but I'm not giving up. I mean, I really believe that most of the time when a newborn is kidnapped, it's because someone wants to raise a baby. Someone wants to sell a baby or raise a baby. Uh, it's possible that 
he was murdered, but it seems less likely. Why go through that? You know, it just doesn't really make sense. But um, adoption and babies was, it's a big market, especially back then. Uh, you could sell black market babies for a fair amount of money. So I think that that was probably uh, the reason he was kidnapped was financial. And that means that some family took him in probably unknowingly and he was raised as someone else and may not even know he was adopted and kidnapped. So let's hope with all the millions of people DNA testing, I still have great hope that someone will test and will say, hey, (laughs) guess who you are? (laughs) Well, thank you so much, Cece, for talking to us today. Thank you. Bye. You too. As Paul became accustomed to his new reality, his true identity, his missing twin sister, he knew it was time for him to have an honest conversation with his mother and father about what he had learned in the two years since they stopped talking. Where is your family living now, your adopted family? Are they They're still in Oklahoma in the same house I grew up in? Um, my, my father passed away a few months ago. Oh, I'm sorry about that. Thank you. I actually went went back home to visit with my mom and dad, and we had a great visit. And at breakfast, my mom handed me a photo album. And I never saw this photo album before. It was white, and inside were letters and pictures of me when I was with the Eckerd family for that almost year as Scott McKinley. They had all these pictures of me playing a little toy guitar, um, just you know, just hanging out with them. And um, they had like my my menu of what I what I ate and like daily diaries of what I would do. And they had given this to my mom. My mom had never told me. She had this. She had this all these years, and she gave it to me. And I was I mean I I I, I was crying. She was crying, and we were actually talking about how she felt back then. And she had never never expressed any of those things to me before. What did she say? just how she harbored all this guilt about handing Paul over. It, it just really, it was the worst time of their life and it took a long time to, to move forward. How has having a daughter sort of changed your perspective about how your parents acted or behaved? I'll say that my, uh, my daughter's the main reason I started all of this. Because when I saw how she was like me, and her mom at such a young age that's what really got me to think am am i really am i really paul and also you know like her safety when she was born i never lost left the hospital room at all ever and it's like all those things that my parents went through i was reliving again in the hospital room and then as just just growing up in order for me to be the best father i can be i wanted i want to live a life of, of honesty and truth and that's also why I wanted to continue this. I want her to know the truth about everything. Because if you, if you live a lie, you're not really living at all. Today, Dora and Chester's biological son, Paul Franzak, is still missing. He would be 53 years old, However, he may believe he is a different age. It is even extremely likely that he doesn't even know he's a missing person. If you listening 
have reason to suspect that you or someone you know could possibly be the kidnapped Paul Franzak? Then we urge you to submit your DNA to one of the major databases that CC Moore and Paul's team check regularly. In addition, Paul's twin sister, Jill, is also still missing. She would have disappeared from New Jersey sometime in 1965, when she was about a year and a half old. While some believe she was met with foul play, her whereabouts or remains have never been located. We would, of course, like to thank Paul and Cece for talking to us for this episode. If you want to read Paul's book, it's called The Foundling, The True Story of a Kidnapping, A Family Secret, and My Search for the Real Me. You can buy it wherever books are sold. If you want to listen to the book, you can try Audible free for 30 days with a free book by going to audible.com slash thin air or text thin air to 500 500. It supports Paul, us, and our sponsors, and you get an amazing book. That's audible.com slash thin air or text thin air to 500 500. Thin Air Podcast is supported by our donors at patreon.com slash thinairpodcast. One of the rewards through our Patreon is to become an executive producer of our show. Executive producers get early info on upcoming cases and extra info that didn't make it into past episodes, as well as being credited as an executive producer of our show. The executive producers of Thin Air Podcast are... Paige Leno, Adam Barbary, Irene Ryan, Sarah Donahue, L. McManus, Bridger Mobley, Skeeter Hall, Wendy Gabbery, Susan Anderson, Jack and Christy Lupian, Drusilla Dents, Rebecca Hardberger, Heather Cadieu, Bonnie Mortensen, Mistea Pena, Elizabeth Farmer, and Anthony Loper. Thank you all so much for your continued support. Music for today's episode was brought to you by Blue Dot Sessions. Check out their full music archive at sessions.blue.